Hello and welcome to The Mock Review with Ben and Drew. I'm Ben Garmo. And I'm Drew Evans. We're pleased to be joined today by Justin Bernstein. Justin is someone I think many of you are familiar with. He's a three-time guest of this podcast, which of course is, I'm sure, the first thing that he'd list on his uh, mock trial accolades. But he's a uh, member of the Amta Coaches Hall of Fame, a the professor of trial advocacy at the UCLA School of Law, and of course, uh, a well-decorated member of the Amta community, a former president of the American Mock Trial Association. And we're thrilled to have him back on to discuss the recent online mock trial competition that was hosted by UCLA Law. Justin, thanks for taking time to chat with us again. Thank you for having me. Justin, I kind of want to start out before we get into the details of the online competition. Obviously, you know, we're recording this in the midst of, you know, many, many millions of people around the country and around the world who are uh, self-isolating as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, You, like, like many in our community, has to teach trial advocacy in the midst of that, uh, you know, this circumstance. And, and I imagine that has been uh, quite a change for you. So I was just kind of curious how that's been going since uh, things have developed. I guess I should start by saying I'm really lucky because I have a job that I can still do. Uh, I still have a job. I'm able to do it despite the, the health crisis we're all facing. I still get to interact with my students. The lesson plans are virtually the same. But of course, teaching trial advocacy online is suboptimal. Uh, Not being in the same room, not being able to work on body language, physicality, eye contact in the same ways is not the best way to do trial advocacy. Now, we can look for silver linings uh, to the extent that the world is going to be online more in the future, or the fact that there are things we do as attorneys that are uh, using video. For example, I've done an arbitration by video and online, and you sometimes have court appearances online or you take depositions online. This is good preparation for that, but it doesn't change the fact that it's not the same as being in the same room. So I'm adjusting to it. Uh, My students are adjusting to it. It's nice to see their faces every week, uh, but certainly I look forward to the time we can all be in the same room together. Yeah. I think that's a really good point about, you know, sort of being a harboring of the the future. I'm doing a set of depositions, you know, over video tomorrow. And I sort of have no idea how it's going to go, but it's kind of the nature of, of how things are. Uh, in terms of, you know, AMTA, right? Because obviously you're, you're on the AMTA board and, and, you know, we've, we've had, you know, many members, members of the AMTA board on, including yourself. And so of course, we're not asking you to speak as a member of the board. But obviously the last you know month to six weeks has been pretty chaotic from an AMTA perspective uh, in terms of having to postpone the remaining three orcs and the national championship and then just kind of adjusting as, as things changed in the world very rapidly. Uh, how has that been for you behind the scenes having to deal with everything from an AMTA perspective? The, the answer is that in many ways it hasn't affected me on the AMTA front in the sense that Uh, My work is either historically working on cases or more recently as chair of development. So I'm not on any tournament committee. I'm not sure that I've ever been in charge of running AMTA tournaments. I may have served as reps, but in terms of logistical elements and dealing with uh, what this pandemic represents for uh, AMTA's orcs and nationals, that's not something that'd be part of my portfolio anyway. And so I guess it gives me some perspective to say what I've observed from those who are doing that work. And while I, I really shouldn't be talking about uh, what AMTA's plans are or, or, or anything like that, I can tell you that I've been blown away by how hardworking and thoughtful my peers are. And that, that sounds like a, a shameless plug, 
for AMTA, but it, in some ways it is uh, one of the most inspiring things I've seen in my decade plus on the board. Uh, you'll notice that almost every national trial competition from high school to college to law school has said canceled, except AMTA said postponed. And while of course there's no uh, report right now about what's next or what would be next or, or, or if something could be next, I think the reason it's just postponed is that you have people uh, in AMTA leadership who are working incredibly hard to see if anything can be done uh, and what that might be. So uh, the details aren't really for me to say, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, to those who are wondering what's AMTA thinking, AMTA's doing a lot to try to uh, give students what they want. Yeah. And I think that's that's been reflected in you know the public correspondence that we've seen. It, it, it's clear to me, I mean, you know, we talked to Devin a couple of weeks ago about things from the host perspective and, and nothing, none of this is ideal. Uh, but I think it's a testament to the leadership that everyone is doing as much work as they can to, uh, you know, handle everything's, everything under what are incredibly challenging circumstances. Yeah. And, and I think part of the reason why AMTA has been so thoughtful about trying to figure out what, if anything, can be done. Uh, is that AMTA leadership is almost in, exclusively at this point, current or former coaches and uh, former competitors, they're all understanding of what students have lost, of what it would be like to lose an orc that you've built for all year. Uh, what it'd be like to qualify for nationals, some schools for the first time in program history or students for the first time that they've ever qualified. And to lose that is just devastating. And I think uh, the folks I, I get to work with see that and they want to do what they can. Well, along those lines, obviously, Justin, you, you know, you run the program at UCLA and you coach it at I mean, UCLA law, I should say. Uh, and while your season, like everyone else's season was cut short, uh, I'm curious how things had been going before that. Can you tell us a little bit about how this, you know, season had gone for, uh, your teams at UCLA law and your program there before, uh, the season had to be ended uh, prematurely. I am grateful for the opportunity to brag about my students. <laughs> I thought you might be. <laughs> yeah. For, for the second year in a row, UCLA Law School has the best record in the United States. Uh, I could sort of back that up statistically in a number of ways, but I'll give you my, my favorite recent stat. Uh, in the last two years, our median result has been to be a tournament finalist. Uh, the way law school competitions work is you have the preliminary rounds, and then two to four teams make the playoffs. You have semifinals, finals, and then a champion. Uh, our average result has been finalist. Uh, we have been in the finals more often than we haven't. And that's not just uh, the best record in the country. It's by far the best. I'm especially proud of the fact that that doesn't represent one team. Uh, in law school, unlike in college, uh, each team is trying different cases, going to different competitions with, with different facts and different rules. So when I say that those are our records. Uh, That's not one or two students or even five or six students who are dominating. That is a program of 22 students, all of whom consistently win or contend at their events. So I am a very proud coach. All right. Well, moving on from the law school world and back to what we're all here to talk about, uh, the college recent online competition that that uh, Justin, you have spearheaded. Uh, so just to you know, take us back to the beginning, what was the initial idea for this online competition of some sort? What, what made you want to do it? I literally woke up one Friday morning, uh, this is a little more than three weeks ago, and the first thought that popped into my head was, we should do an online competition. And 
I, I wish I could tell you what put the idea there, but woke up and that was what hit my head. Uh, <laughs> and by the end of the day, I think we'd announced it and uh, a $500 prize for, for first place. Uh, I hadn't yet asked UCLA, can we do that? I figured I'll ask them on Monday. Uh, better <laughs> to to ask forgiveness than permission. So uh, that was uh, that was how we you know, came to fruition. And we'll obviously get into some of the details, but just like in in general, how how has it gone? Are you pleased with you know how how the the first round I believe has has gone so far? It's exceeded all expectations for me. Uh, I thought we would get. I don't know, 30, 40, 50 competitors. I was hoping we'd get 100 judges. We had 174 students participate. We had hundreds of judges. So many students have written kind notes about this giving them another chance to compete. Uh, obviously, there is no replacing uh, the experience of going to orcs uh, or nationals. Uh, and so this isn't trying to be that. Uh, but it's, it's pretty great to hear students say this was something that alleviated some of the, the heartache. So, Justin, you just said that you had 174 students participate. I'm blown away by that number. But can you break down, like, was there a, a specific, do you have numbers for how many did the closings versus openings versus the witnesses? I'm kind of curious what that breakdown looked like. Now, for those of you listening, that was excellent looping by Drew. He heard me mention 174 <laughs> and he, he put it in his next question. That's that's a pretty pro move. Almost like I did mock trial, you know. Almost. Uh, so like I said, we had, we had 174 students. They represented uh, 81 different schools across the country. Uh, I think we had 320-something uh, AMTA alums judging the competition, and then a few more who uh, are AMTA judges who are not alums. Uh, in terms of the three categories, we had opening statement, cross-examination, excuse me, opening statement, closing argument, and witness performance. Do you guys want to guess what the, the breakdown was percentage-wise? I'm going to go 80-10-10. Like 80 on closings. Okay. Um, so I definitely think, I, I could be wrong on this, I think the witness probably was the lowest. I'd go maybe like 10 to 15, let's say 15% there. And then I think I'd go like 30% and 65% for openings and closings. Okay. So uh, the first round goes to, to Ben. Uh, yeah, yeah, it, was, it was about 50% closings, 30% openings, and 20% witness performances. See, that's, I mean, I'll just say I'm, intrigued by that i i obviously expected that most people were going to do closings but i think that closing is so much harder to do in something like this because you don't have the rest of the trial to like be adapting to things i mean i think that that's where closings really shine i i, I obviously was expecting everyone to have chosen closing but i if i was doing it i feel like i would have gone opening i don't know about you two but i feel like it's easier to have that prescripted and, and kind of feel more believable in that setting than for me a closing. I agree with you. I mean, I think if, having watched some of the videos, the openings more closely resemble what you'd actually see in a trial, right? right? Because right, right. if you're doing a witness, if it's a monologue, that's obviously not how, how things go. Uh, if it's a closing, you don't have the benefit of the shared experience the judges had watching the trial. You can't respond and adapt to things in the same way. Well, Justin, we kind of alluded to it already, but you know, you had these three categories, but of course the, uh, tournament was originally announced as more of, I think it was just a closing argument. Uh, and then you expanded it fairly quickly thereafter. What was the thought process behind initially doing the closing argument and then expanding it to include openings and witness performance? It, it was just a, uh, what, what I saw as a demand uh, or interest from the community. I mean, we, like I said, we announced it on Friday 
And I think by Saturday morning, I was getting emails. What about the witnesses? Um, and hey, what about openers? Uh, a couple of my former students who were openers said, hey, you always told us that openers win championships. Why are you doing a closing competition? And they're right. <laughs> so uh, I figured, uh, why not open it up to all three categories? Again, I hadn't even asked UCLA for the 500. So I'm like, <laughs> might as well do 1500. <laughs> right. You know, better to ask forgiveness than permission and then forgiveness again, than forgiveness again. And yeah, I, I yeah, yeah. definitely... I, I get that, and that's that's funny about your students. They, they uh, students and former students have a good way of of you know chiming in like that. That's that's really funny. Um, so you obviously uh, had the competition, and, and let's just before we get into you know scoring and judges and everything like that, was there anything interesting that you noticed as sort of the host of the competition in general about how things went? Yeah, so I saw some interesting stats about scoring, about you know demographics of participants. But I think the the sort of fun stat that popped out to me was when people signed up. As anybody who's run a, a Google form knows, it, it tracks a timestamp for when the document submitted. And the competition I think gave people I think exactly three weeks to prepare and submit their closing. Uh, I'll give Drew a chance to come back in our in our guessing game. What percentage of students would you guess submitted? on the last day they could submit? Uh, if I had to guess last day, let's go 20%. Ben? These are college students, and you're going with 20% on the last day? Yeah, but it's mock trial students. I would, I would argue that might make it even worse. I'm going to go 70%. Ben wins again. It's 80% of our students uh, submitted their oh, videos on. On, the, on the last day. 80%? Jeez. All right, well, I guess I was more of a planner. That's actually, that's, for the record, not true at all, but you know. Drew is imagining a, a country filled with a bunch of Drews, all of whom submitted it uh, three days after the announcement. I mean, anyone that knows me knows that I do procrastinate an insane amount, but it's more that I feel like for something like this, I would, I would hear it and I get so excited about it. I just like want to do it. And then I'd be like, okay, like I'm done now. But I guess, yeah, I, I can understand why people would submit it later. I just feel like... yeah. So not only were they submitting it on the last day, people submitted at the end of the last day. Uh, I think I think the the median uh, entrant was five hours before the deadline. So with about five hundred hours to prepare, half the field did so. They submitted it in their last five hours, which I thought was pretty fantastic. Can you tell <laughs> what was the earliest that you ever got? I think we got one on the, the Tuesday after we announced it. Uh, there wow. were a couple people who were really excited, but. I wasn't even sure whether people were really going to participate much because after the first two weeks, we only had a handful of videos. Mm -hmm. And even until the last day, you know, we only had a handful of videos. So I'm thinking, okay, this isn't going to be very hard to, to coordinate. You know, I got all these judges. We don't have that many participants. And then it just exploded uh, on the deadline day. <laughs> well, well, related to the videos themselves, right? Before we get into the, the scoring and whatnot, right? I, I sort of have a two-parter, which is, did you yourself uh, get a chance to watch the videos and then either through watching them or hearing from people who judged, did you notice sort of different approaches that different people took in terms of how to film the videos and, and you know, what presentation styles they used given that the vast majority of students I'm imagining were probably filming inside their home or their dorm room or something like that? I totally watched a bunch of videos. I obviously didn't watch all 170 videos in, in full. But for one thing, when I'm setting up the, the links to send to judges, I need to make sure that all of the links work. And so uh, I'd make sure that 
the Google uh, form was set up with the proper link. I'd open the, the file and, you know, you make sure that you can see it and there's sound. And then some of them are really good. So you just keep watching for a little bit. Uh, plus, of course, I've always got my UCLA hat on. So I'm thinking, hey, uh, this is a student who's listed as a junior. They were really good. I wonder where they want to go to law school. Uh, but yeah, I, I definitely took a, a peek at some of the videos. And sometimes I get emails from judges saying, oh, so-and-so is really great. You got to watch that video. Uh, as for the different choices that people made, I think it was really cool to see how people approached it. Uh, both sort of uh, academically, I was curious to know what people would choose, but also because uh, I'll be coaching in an online format uh, next month at Top Gun. UCLA has been invited to, to compete in the law school one-on-one national championship and it's going to be online for the first time. So I don't know the best way to do that. I've never uh, coached an online competition. So I wanted to see how people were approaching it. Were they standing? Were they sitting? Uh, were they using backgrounds on Zoom? Or were they just using natural backgrounds in their, in their rooms? Uh, were they trying to do this indoors or outdoors? And not surprisingly, people did it in really, really different ways. Uh, some students did it sitting. Most stood. Uh, some stood really close to the camera. So their screen took up most of the face. Uh, me, their, their face took up most of the screen. Others stood much farther back, so they had more room to be physical and to move. In terms of settings, we saw every place from courtrooms. I guess people uh, in some locations were able to get access to courtrooms or classrooms. Some people did it in their their bedrooms, their dorm rooms, uh, or living rooms. A couple of people did it outside. Uh, it was really interesting to see how people were able to adapt uh, under the circumstances. Well, moving uh, beyond just the participants and the uh, number of them that you were able to get and all the variations on, on how they chose to present it, I want to move on towards the judges' side of this. Um, ben and I both were lucky enough to, to get to judge in this competition, but like, how was the general recruitment for judges? And you, know, you said you had 174 students. Do you know exactly how many judges there were? You said that you guys judged. Uh, I, 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 if you don't mind, I have a question for you. What did you think of the participants you got to see? I thought that I was impressed in some ways, and I, I it will remain anonymous who I saw, and I'll say like slightly disappointed in others. I think that I, I happen to only see closings, which I, I, that's one of the things I was going to ask you, if, if that was kind of intentional to only give people kind of the same uh, type of, of uh, presentation. Um, but at least for me, I, I going back to what I said earlier, I just find it hard to evaluate closings when I don't see the rest of the trial. And I would, and it made it just difficult for me to really appreciate all the things that they were doing. Um, that being said, I was really impressed by the fact that everyone I saw at least seemed completely memorized and seemed, uh, a lot of them did some pretty interesting things uh, that I didn't think of when I first looked at the case. And I just overall thought that people were making the most of what's not an awesome situation. It's not easy to kind of have the same energy you would have in a courtroom, you know, around your friends in front of a real judge, just presenting to a camera is tough. And I thought that people did a really great job despite that. Um, but I will say that my biggest drawback was just the microcosm of a closing being harder to evaluate than when it's in the context of a full trial. Yeah, I, I, the, I think my only short thought is I enjoyed it. I found it extraordinarily challenging to sort of separate people uh, in part because I just think like I am, like I assume the majority of judges used to having sort of an entire trial to contextualize performances. And that doesn't mean that you can't sort of compare two closings and think one is better than the other. But, you know, 
there were certain mistakes that people can make during a closing, like using facts, not in evidence that they couldn't make in this competition um, or sort of misusing their space, which I deliberately ignored. Right. I, I sort of tried to put on my blinders and just ignore anything having to do with the the setting. Uh, and uh, that was that was really hard. And I think, you know, I am not going to be you know coaching an online competition at least you know in the in the near future but as you know it's possible it could happen down the line and i do have to teach trial advocacy online it was very informative in terms of like hey is it possible to you know do this in some way and to evaluate people based on you know this different setting so i I enjoyed it and i think it was a learning experience uh, so, Justin, if we could – so just to return to the original question. I, I, I was non-responsive. No, no worries. Uh, how many judges did you end up having? There were about 400 total judges, uh, about 320 of which were AMTA alums. Wow. Yeah, incredible. I guess I'm not terribly surprised that there were more judges than competitors. It's a lot less of a time commitment to just say I'll watch a few videos, but that is still – it's pretty amazing. So what what did you do to recruit them? I mean that's a pretty amazing number. So I started with an email to a bunch of uh, my former students or coaches I knew, board, AMTA board members, uh, some people who'd signed up to judge some Southern California law school competitions that had been canceled. So I knew they might be itching to, to judge. I sent that out and people started responding immediately, like way higher participation rates than when I normally send a judge solicitation email. My guess is it's because you can do it from the confines of your house. And it's also because I think People right now are really generous. They they want to give back. They know that this uh, has been really painful for students, and they, they want to pitch in. Uh, I mentioned it to uh, some of the other AMTA uh, board members, uh, including President Wawarhe, and he's like, hey, why don't we get uh, some judges to pitch in? I bet some alums would love to get involved right now. So uh, AMTA put up a link for people to sign up, and all of a sudden, we had tons of judges. Well, so going back to something that I kind of brought up earlier, was there a specific way that you assigned judges? I mean, obviously, you want to avoid having a coach evaluate one of their own students. But beyond that, was there any method to the madness of assigning 400 judges to 174 students? The biggest thing was trying to make sure we didn't have conflicts. So I tried to screen for uh, people who had affiliations with a particular school. That can be tricky, of course. I mean, imagine anybody who's tried to lay out... uh, uh, judge cards in a in a tab room or in a judge instruction room. Usually you have the two teams and a couple of judge cards you're signing next to them. But imagine uh, each of your rounds has 10 students because we put 10 students on each ballot. And then you've got hundreds of judges that you have to potentially assign and make sure there's no conflicts. Uh, and of course, some judges will write down the school they're with now, not who uh, they, you know, who they might've known in the past. I was most concerned with eliminating uh, conflicts where you recognize a student. Obviously, that's the most important. If you if you know the student, if you know the school, that's the biggest issue. Uh, but also, if somebody had competed for, say, UC Irvine, even if it was five years before, there might be a similarity in style. So to the extent I could, I tried to keep people from judging their alma maters. That said, the way the ballot was set up, anybody who felt like they couldn't judge somebody fairly was allowed to just leave the ballot blank. And we saw that a lot where a judge would say, hey, uh, I watched the 10, but I didn't score number seven because uh, I think that student goes to the school where I went. So you mentioned the, the ballot specifically. Uh, what scoring system did you use and why did you choose the system that you uh, ultimately ended up with? 
one to 10, uh, 10 is the, the best, whole numbers only. Uh, like I say, when I do judge instruction, uh, whole numbers only, no irrational numbers, you can't write pi. <laughs> I, and beyond that, I left it to the judges. As for why, I felt like this is an AMTA event, even though of course it's not an official AMTA competition. Uh, we had AMTA competitors and AMTA judges. So I figured use the system people are familiar with. I also wanted something that was simple. I didn't want people to have to, to sweat as they're trying to decipher what the scoring system is. Watch the video, pick a number one to 10. Well, and I think that makes a lot of sense, but obviously, you know, as we all experience with, with AMTA scoring, you've got judges who use, you know, different ranges. Uh, so was there a way that you tried to account for the fact that different judges will use sort of different internal scales uh, on that one ten scale? Yes and no. So absolutely, judges have different scales. Uh, in fact, one of the things I learned in doing this competition was that the scores that a judge gives on average are actually better predictor of the score they're going to give a particular student than the scores that student has received from some other, from other judges in the competition. In other words, if there's a score missing on a ballot uh, and you had to guess what that score is, you'd rather know the other scores on that ballot rather than who that student is. Uh, the judge affects the actual raw score more than the individual student. Uh, and so that's a long way of saying, yeah, I want to make sure that we weren't uh, skewing results based on the baseline of our judges, uh, whether they tend to score high or tend to score low. And so I was prepared to use a formula to sort of adjust for scoring inflation or deflation. But as it happened, I didn't need to because uh, the way we did this is that we had our hundreds of judges uh, viewing the preliminary rounds, but what I call the, the first pass at, at scoring 174 students. The goal was to find the top eight witnesses, openers and closers, and then set up a bracket from there. And so when I went to find the top in each category, I was going to do the adjustment for judges scoring baselines and it turned out it didn't matter. Uh, the top eight by raw score were the same as the top eight when you account for the baseline. And I think the reason is that we just had so many judges mm -hmm. that essentially each group had similar baselines for their judges. And that's because at minimum, every single student was scored by 18 different judges. Uh, the average was 18 scores per opening, per witness, per closing. So speaking of the, the three different categories, did you have, uh, like you said, you had ballots of 10 different students on it. Was that always yeah. 10 closers, 10 openers, 10 witnesses, like you kind of would keep them together? Or were there some ballots that had five closings, three openings, and two witnesses? So I said 10, but I should have said eight to 10 because we didn't have an equally divisible number for every category. Uh, we segregated by category. Okay. So if you were scoring a ballot, you'd get all closings, all openings, or all witnesses. Got it. And the rationale is it's really hard to compare uh, apples to, to oranges. Although exactly. uh, people do that all the time in trial. But of course, for, for every closing, you have one on the other side. For every opening, you have one on the other side. And so it seemed problematic to compare openers to, to closers, uh, particularly when you know, the closers don't have anything to respond to and, 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 and so on and so forth. So this seemed like a better apples to apples comparison. Makes sense. Uh, so additionally, the, there were obviously some rules and guidelines that, that you posted uh, that were kind of to, to make this as fair as possible. But did you have any instances or was there a plan in place for if a student was breaking any of the rules? 
Yeah. So we had some rules in place that recognize the, the challenges that people are facing right now, or at least try to recognize some of those challenges. We said you can't use printed exhibits. Uh, you can't use uh, props, things like that, that, that wouldn't sort of ordinarily be available. Uh, you can't have somebody in the video as your party representative, which I thought was a fun question. Um, <laughs> and of course, that does make the, the performance a little bit less fun. But the thinking was some people are literally isolated by themselves. Wouldn't be fair to not give them that opportunity. Some people don't have access to a printer. And so we, we had rules like that. We had time limits, of course. I didn't uh, give any sort of penalty if a student broke those rules. Instead, I just made the rules available to the judges, and they sort of enforced them. Uh, I got a number of emails from judges saying, hey, I noticed a student did this. Is this permitted? And I would answer their question. And I think it sort of took care of itself. I will, I will fully admit that I noticed that someone had edited one of their closings and I scored them down for it because I was not happy that they had edited it. Yeah. I mean, that, so that's a good example. There is no rule against editing. And so if anybody right. asks me, so there's no rule, you can score it up if you like it. You can score it down. My sense is that most judges either ignored it or scored it down. They thought it was, uh, it was cheap. I know some judges really liked it. They thought it looked professional. But it's sort of like anything you do in trial competition. When you do something a little different than everyone else, you run the the risk of getting scored down for it, but you also uh, may enjoy a benefit from it. So I think people took some calculated risks and that was pretty cool. So my, my last question on kind of the, the scoring and the rules aspect of this is about the case itself. Uh, so my understanding is that this was the case they ran in Gladiator 2019. Is that right? That's right. Okay. So were there any repeat competitors? Obviously some of the students that competed in Gladiator 2019 are first years in college now, and some of them were obviously very successful. And if they were a gladiator competitor, they probably did pretty well. So were there any repeat competitors? And was there anything that you did to account for that? Yes, there were some repeat competitors. And for those who don't know, gladiator is the national one-on-one uh, high school mock trial championship. Uh, it's, it's every summer in California. And a lot of our former competitors uh, have gone on to great amped success. I think we've had national final rounds with uh, multiple former gladiators in them, which is pretty cool. Uh, so yeah, one of the things that crossed my mind was what kind of advantage does this give people who competed with the case a summer ago? Uh, because they've had the case, you know, they had the case for four weeks the previous summer, they got to compete with it, they got to try it in, in courtrooms, as opposed to everybody else who's getting it now for just three weeks and doesn't have access, presumably, to the same coaching or teammates. My thought was, a, it's probably going to be fine because after all, they're freshmen. And I guess what I would say to a senior is, if you have three weeks, you should be able, you should be able to beat a freshman. <laughs> uh, and B, I had a case written and I wanted to get this up as soon as possible. Like I said, I woke up Friday morning. I'm like, I got an idea. I, I got to get this online. So uh, having a, a case already done was was too attractive to pass up. The good news is, uh, having seen results, uh, it hasn't been an issue. We had a bunch of gladiators compete and while all did fine. Uh, there's nothing in the results to indicate that as a group they had any massive advantage or any advantage at all. Uh, you'll see in the playoffs, uh, we did have some representation from former gladiators. What you won't see, of course, is the gladiators who, who didn't advance. Well, you just mentioned the playoffs and you just mentioned advancing. So I will uh, echo my co-host from earlier and loop that into my next question, uh, which is let's talk for a little bit about the results. Uh, so before we get into some of the details about them, can you give us, uh, can you tell us when are they being announced? Where are they being announced? When should we start to expect to see uh, the results of the competition? 
Well, we do have the results so far anyway. It's it's Ben 2, Drew 0, but we're not done. So he has a chance to come back. <laughs> uh, I'll try. So uh, we're res- announcing results this week. Uh, AMTA has graciously offered to uh, announce the results on its social media starting on Wednesday. And I think over the course of the rest of the week, uh, the brackets that will be put up in the middle of the week will slowly get filled in. And so you'll see over the course of the week and weekend uh, who's who's going to be our champion? Who's going to take home the five hundred dollars in each category? Well, along those lines, though, so you obviously, you know, you know, you were the one who ran the competition, and you uh, know all of the results, I assume, at this point, or at least everything that's been decided so far. Uh, can you give us a sense of, you know, what you saw in those results? Was there anything interesting uh, in terms of, you know, demographics and participation uh and and that same category with scoring the schools and the sort of the tpr representation uh what what breakdown do you have on the numbers that came in with the results sure so i only have the preliminary round results uh right now the ballots are out for the the playoff judges we used a a a separate set of judges to judge the playoffs uh both because i wanted more head-to-head comparison i figured if everybody's split up on different ballots even if your, your scores are statistically significant, there's nothing like being compared head-to-head. So the judges we have uh, currently watching our, our top eight videos in each category are phenomenally accomplished. Uh, and you'll see when, when AMTA announces this week uh, some of the details for the event, you'll, you'll see a list of the, the names of those judges. And we're talking former Top Gun national champions, trial by combat champions, AMTA national champions, Dozens of All-Americans, AMTA board members, uh, recognizable coaches. So I, th- I think people will, will get a sense of not only how much those folks volunteered, but also uh, the results you're going to see, I think, are pretty reliable. Uh, but as far as the preliminary rounds, uh, I love spreadsheets and I love stats. So I started digging into, okay, uh, do we see any relationship between scores and gender? Uh, I didn't see any. Uh, any relationship between scores and the way it was filmed. For example, whether it's set in a professional setting like a classroom or courtroom versus somebody's dorm room, I saw no difference there, which was encouraging because we asked our judges not to score on that basis. Uh, so I did see a, an advantage uh, on the numbers uh, for your class year. Uh, seniors tend to score a little higher than juniors who tend to score a little higher than sophomores who tend to score a little higher than, than freshmen, which makes sense, but it was interesting to see it in the numbers. That's really interesting. Uh, and it's also, you know, good to hear that people, that the judges who scored seem to take the instructions seriously with, you know, making sure that they judged everyone on a even playing field. Uh, of course, you know, I'm sure you saw, I mean, with 174 competitors, a wide variety of different schools and, and those schools, you know, many of them presumably are represented on the uh, AMTA power rankings. So did you see any interesting trends in what schools you saw and power ranking and how that corresponded to uh, the results that came in? I ran a correlation between a student's uh, scoring average and their TPR, their school's TPR. And it was a positive relationship. It was statistically significant. It was highest for closers. It was uh, weakest for witnesses. Uh, but then again, that was the smallest sample size. Uh, we had the fewest witnesses participate. Uh, but there was definitely a correlation between a school's historical record of success as measured by TPR and the results that their students enjoyed in this competition. One other thing I've been kind of curious, how much results are we exactly going to get? Are we 
going to be able to see the videos that were published? Are we going to be able to see like a, a tab breakdown of what someone's average score was? How, how much are we going to really be getting? I'm not going to release individual scores, uh, just like you wouldn't get uh, individual student scores uh, on, on tab summaries. What we're going to announce are the top eight in each category. Uh, it's similar to how I approach trial by combat. That is, people are putting themselves out there. Let's honor the people who did best, not looking to uh, put a spotlight on, on somebody who decided to take a chance on something, do something new, uh, stretch themselves. I don't want them uh, having their score publicized unless that's something they want to publicize. We're also going to make the videos of the top competitors available. So uh, I think you'll get the link when you see the AMP to Facebook and Instagram this week. So everybody who was a top A witness, opener, and closer, you'll be able to watch their videos. Are you going to publish the average scores for them or probably just leave it off? I don't know. Uh, the answer is less about uh, the privacy of the data and more just how, how, much, uh, how much work I'm going to do on this before we start <laughs> turning to uh, planning for trial by combat, uh, getting my own students ready for Top Gun, things like that. And are you going to publish the the more detailed results to the individual students and just not for the wider audience? Like, will will individuals that competed, will they get to find out what their average score was, let's say? Absolutely. Any okay. student who wants to know her or his uh, data, I'm happy to, to share that. Uh, that That's always my, my philosophy is even if I'm not making everything publicly available, I'll certainly let each student know how they did. Well, Justin, you mentioned sort of how this came about and, and it's kind of a, a novel idea and something that, uh, you know, at least for the mock trial community, as far, as far as I'm aware, is kind of a first. So uh, now that you're starting to get through the process and you're getting close to the end of the process for the first time, uh, was there anything in particular that maybe surprised you as someone who's been doing this for a long time, but is doing something new uh, about doing this competition? Ooh, good question. Uh, I think there are two things that surprise me. One is more statistical. Uh, if you haven't already realized, I, I, I like spreadsheets and I, I can be nerdy about this stuff. And, and the other is more overarching. The statistical thing that, that surprised me was the incredibly low subjectivity or low arbitrariness of the scores. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, so I, I think I mentioned that at minimum, every student was scored by at least 18 different judges and on average, each video was scored by 25, I think 24.8 uh, judges. So at the end, I had a robust, a robust set of data for each student. But of course, uh, I watched the data come in. I mean, so we, we sent out the ballots on a, on a Saturday morning, and I wanted to make sure the spreadsheet was working and that the, the Google Forms were being filled out. So I watched the, the data stream in, and I sort of took a snapshot of what the results would have been if I stopped the competition after just five scores per ballot. That is, instead of having each student scored on average 25 times, what would it look like if each student was just scored five times? And the answer is, it would have been identical. The order of the top eight in each category might have mm -hmm. altered a little bit, but it would have been the exact eight, uh, same witnesses, same attorneys uh, for opening, and same for closing. Oh. What that suggests to me is that while we often complain about, oh, this is very subjective or it's arbitrary or, or that judge wasn't paying attention or they don't know what they're talking about, the score is stabilized incredibly quickly, uh, which I think has really good things to say about uh, our competition in general. It suggests that the results from competitions tend to be meaningful, that even with small sample sizes of two judges or at nationals, three judges around, there is something very telling about 
those numbers, particularly when they're not just scoring one part of a trial, an opening or closing, but 14 elements per side. So I think that suggests a, a pretty de- high degree of reliability for our scores, which is great. Uh, I guess the overarching and less nerdy thought that I had as I, as I looked at the numbers is just how many people participated. Like I said, I, I was stunned and overwhelmed to see what the response was from students, uh, perhaps even more blown away by how willing people were to donate their time to watch videos, uh, to watch students. A lot of judges came back and said, hey, do you want me to judge another one? Uh, this is really cool. And I think it speaks to the community that that we have in Collegiate Mock Trial. Uh, there's really nothing like it. And so as uh, cliche as it might sound, it, it was inspiring and I was thrilled to be a part of it. I think, first of all, I think that sentiment is absolutely accurate. And I think it's a very, uh, it's a great thing to see in sort of the midst of everything that, that we're going through as, as a, as a world, just to, you know, that our community is, is as strong and as, uh, really, you know, united as, as it is right now. Um, let me ask you one quick follow-up before we wrap up on, on that judging thing. Cause it's just something that, that occurred to me as you were saying that, um, we obviously don't have a, you know, a mirrored data set that is like, you know, 400 judges, most of whom are not AMTO alums. But do you think that if, say, if hypothetically we had that data set, that the level of fluctuation might increase some, like the basic part of my question is, do you think some of that consistency comes from the fact that it sounded like the vast majority of your judging pool were people who were familiar with this activity and, uh, you know, had competed in the past? Ooh, I like that question. So uh, I can't give you a definitive answer, but I can give you a pretty educated guess. And the answer is, I don't think so. I don't think that the fact that people were involved in AMTA sort of skews their results here. I would have expected that that would be the case. But I looked at, for this competition, uh, the scores given by people who were former AMTA competitors, uh, who were not lawyers, versus those who are former AMTA competitors who are now lawyers, versus those who are not alums, but are now lawyers. In other words, three different categories. And there was no significant difference between the scores given from those groups. In other words, if you're trying to guess uh, somebody's scores, it would not have been helpful to know which of those categories they fell into. Uh, We're also running concurrently a law school competition, and there we have many more non-AMTA folks. And so I've been able to look more carefully at whether or not people with AMTA experience are scoring videos uh, differently than those without AMTA experience. And I've not seen any meaningful difference. Interesting. Yeah. And the, the law school competition, I, I'm in the, in the middle of going through, you know, my videos because I'm judging that one too. And it's been really, it's been a lot of fun to kind of judge it immediately after judging the college competition. I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, finishing that up. So, so far, have you noticed a difference in the performance from the college to the law school competitors? I have. Um, I think so far that the undergraduate competitors are drastically better. Um, <laughs> in, in what way? I think in basically there, there were some videos I've watched at the law school level that are, are very good, but what I'm seeing is I think I've kind of expressed this thought on the podcast before, but it largely comports with, with what I experience, you know, having competed in and coached at both levels, which is that, uh, the law school level is sort of much more, uh, I don't know what the best word is, but, but you see a much wider variation in sort of styles and quality 
uh, in different ways. And I think there are just, I think there are more people I'm watching at the law school level who it's clear to me have not really had much uh, trial advocacy uh, competition experience, uh, mm -hmm. which is cool to see because it's 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 cool to see them sort of like getting that experience in real time. Uh, but I'm finding the undergraduate competitors to be more polished, uh, to be more prepared, and I think to just be making better presentation overall. I would agree with all that with one with one exception. I'd say that the law school videos I've watched compared to the college videos I've watched, the college competitors on average, obviously there's ex exceptions on both ends, on average they tend to be more polished, uh, better speakers. I think there's their stories and themes pop a little bit more that that's part of the Amford tradition is making sure you have really clear themes, particularly when you only have five minutes to open. The one difference, and I don't think I can hold this against the college competitors, is that the law school competitors uh, are more technically legally correct. And what I mean by that is that you're much more likely to see an AMTA student say something in opening that would cause a huge problem in real life. For example, mm -hmm. we saw a bunch of law, uh, college competitors who opened for the government say things like, the defendant's going to testify X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Well, hold on. Like You've now just committed prosecutorial misconduct. <laughs> this is a mistrial. You better hope that it's without prejudice. It's probably with prejudice. And that, that defendant's going free. You can't say that somebody's going to testify. Uh, people explaining an opening statement, what beyond a reasonable doubt means. You can't do that. Uh, people giving detailed examples and closing of what beyond a reasonable doubt means. That also might get you in trouble. I, I don't say that as criticism of AMTA students. They haven't gone to law school yet. So of course they don't know some of that. Right. Uh, but with that one exception, I agree. Uh, I enjoy the law school competition, but AMTA folks dominate. Well, Justin, uh, as always, we really appreciate having you on the podcast. It's always great to talk to you, just kind of whether it's, you know, trial by combat or, or this online competition or really anything. Uh, it's a lot of fun to get to break these things down with you. We appreciate everything that you do for the community and, and everything you do for AMTA and, and for running a competition that I think gave a lot of students an opportunity to at least have some sense of, I don't know if I'd say closure, but at least to get to do some mock trial at the end of the season when otherwise they wouldn't have gotten to do that. Uh, but thank you again for taking some time to talk to us. Seriously, thanks, Justin. Yeah, always fun to talk to you guys. Stay safe. You too. Thanks, Justin. You too. You too.